Good morning. Welcome to you guys. Looks like we still have the uh, we still have our uh, uh, holiday attendance level going on here. That's good. Uh, that, that's fine. I'm glad that you guys are here. And whoever's watching on the live stream, I'm glad that you're with us as well. Uh, real fast, this week, men's Bible study is happening. Uh, we took a week off last week. We are in the book of James. If you're interested in being involved, let me know. Um, everything else should be on schedule for this week. Uh, real quick, two things coming up that are kind of big. One is uh, new members class starting January 15th, which is two weeks from today. Anybody's welcome to be involved in that. If you're interested in becoming a member of the church, that's definitely what you'll want to do. It's not, like if you go to that class, it is, you're totally free to come to the class and say, I don't want to be a member of this church. Some people do. That's totally fine. Uh, if you are already a member and uh, you just want to come and hang out and talk, we talk about theology. We actually work through the story of the Bible and talk about some big picture stuff. Uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Please let me know if you're going to be there so I can uh, print out uh, the study guide for you. If you don't tell me that you're gonna be there and you still wanna come, that's okay. It's all right, we can still make that work. It's just, if, if I can know how many are coming in advance, that's kinda helpful, but not necessary. So whoever wants to come, uh, please show up. Also, January 15th, we're gonna start a new round of youth, uh, youth catechism. If you are interested in being involved in that, uh, kids or parents, we're gonna meet briefly after the service next Sunday to go over uh, what that's gonna look like. Uh, we're going to do that after the Bible study hour on Sundays. I know that makes a long day for the kids especially. I found in the past that it's manageable, that they can handle it. Uh, that youth catechism hour is much more relaxed and casual. Uh, they don't have to be uh, you know, on their best behavior. So, uh, but, but I do, I would like to meet with you so we can kind of go over what, what we do in that class. So that'll be next Sunday. We will meet to talk about it. And then two Sundays from now, after the Bible study hour, uh, hang around and we'll do youth catechism. Again, uh, age requirements for that are, there are no age requirements. If your kid is a Christian, if your kid is interested in communion, if your kid wants to learn about the Bible, if your kid has the ability to sit there for at least an hour and listen and talk, then they are eligible. This is not a junior high thing. This is, uh, we're not gonna keep communion from our, our kids if they wanna have communion. So let me know. Let me know. Uh, uh, we'll meet together next Sunday. Okay, I think that's all that I have. Uh, let's go ahead and stand and sing the opening hymn.
Continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Since we're gathered to hear God's word, call upon him in prayer and praise, and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of this altar. Let's first consider our unworthiness and confess before God and one another that we've sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. Together as his people, let us take refuge in the infinite mercy of God, our Heavenly Father, seeking his grace for the sake of Christ and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Almighty God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us our sins and lead us to everlasting life. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm for this morning is Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 63. This is near the very end of Isaiah, so he's right in the middle of the new creation stuff. And what he's doing here is he's retelling the story of the exodus from Egypt, and he's talking about how God saved his people out of Egypt, but they rebelled against him in the wilderness. But he made this promise that he was going to, he was going to redeem them again. He was going to pull them out of exile permanently. That's kind of what Isaiah 40 through 66 is about. Now, one of the cool things I want you to notice about this text this morning is that we frequently think of the Holy Spirit as a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, they didn't really have him. Notice in Isaiah 63 how important the Old Testament is in God bringing his people out of Israel and then guiding them in their daily life. I will recount, Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he's granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior, he's talking about in, in, in the Exodus when he took them out of Egypt. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. And then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, starting today and uh, through uh, Christmas and then Epiphany and then uh, for at least a chunk of Lent, I'm gonna pull out the epistle reading that goes with those Sundays and Christmas, Epiphany, and Lent and substitute Revelation readings. This morning we're gonna start working through the book of Revelation and what's interesting, so the rest of the readings, the Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading will be from those Sundays. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, intertextuality. When, when, when we put the Revelation reading up against these other readings, it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, sparks are struck when those readings bump up against each other. Uh, meanwhile, this morning, let's look at the whole uh, chapter of Revelation 1. The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the, thing that must, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter two. Glory to you, O Lord. When the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn.
So um, the book of Revelation, uh, 22 chapters long. What I want to do is I want to be, so I wanted to look at Revelation for reasons that we'll go into here uh, in a second. But I I, want to be done um, um, before Easter, of course. So there's 22 chapters, which means what we're going to have to do is, and there's 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 a benefit in this, is we're going to fly through Revelation. We're going to look at big, broad chunks. What I don't want to do in here is get bogged down in a bunch of details. And when we get into Revelation, you'll see why that's important. Because it's this, it's, the details are there, they're important. But it's, it's more than details. It's this big vision of God's victory. And what I want to do is focus on the big picture in here. So uh, those of you who come to adult Bible study, you'll know where this is going. What we're going to do is... We're going to look at big chunks of text in the worship service during the sermon. And then afterwards, in adult Bible study, we're going to dig into the details and talk about whatever questions you guys have about um, uh, individual specific details uh, that are in the text. This is an encouragement for those of you who don't come to Bible study to think about coming to Bible study. It would be a good thing. I know that for those of you who are lifelong Lutherans, you're like, oh, Bible study, that's for kids. Uh, Once you hit eighth grade and you do confirmation, then you've graduated and you don't need to do that kind of stuff anymore. Let me encourage you that it would actually be beneficial. I'm not commanding you to do that. It's not in the Bible that you've got to stay after the worship service and go to Bible study. But it would be super helpful to you, especially if you want to dig down into the details that we're going to be looking at, especially in the upcoming chapters, chapters one through three, Chapters four, I'll just say, chapters four and following will definitely have weird stuff that you'll have questions about, unless I'm, unless I'm very much mistaken. I have questions about a lot of the weird things that are in Revelation. So that's the plan. Uh, what I want to do in the sermon this morning is what I usually do when I start a, a study of a book or a text, which is um, do some introduction. I've got a ton of notes here, and I'm going to go super fast. I'm, I know I always talk fast. I will talk faster than I normally talk this morning. I apologize. Uh, you can always go back, and I think that um, um, if you listen to this on a podcast platform, you can tell your phone to do it like at half speed, and then it may be more understandable, although longer. That's the trade-off. So I apologize for that. So Revelation. Uh, Revelation, I, I've never, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, I have never one time in my life preached through or even taught through Revelation uh, because, honestly, I'm scared to death of it. I'm scared to death of Revelation. And I think that probably for a lot of you, you're probably the same way. You probably, for those of you who are serious Bible students, I'm gonna guess that many of you have not spent a lot of time in Revelation. And there are reasons for this, and there, honestly, some, some legitimate reasons for why we would avoid Revelation. Uh, one would be because, honestly, it's just weird, right? Frankly, it's just weird. And it's hard to understand because it is weird. Um, we're not, so so uh, John Calvin, the Swiss reformer, uh, has, uh, I've got in my office uh, commentaries of his on the whole of the Bible, except for Revelation. He would not write a commentary on Revelation because he said, I don't know if I understand it well enough to be able to put things in writing that other people will read. And that, I, I admire that honesty, and I feel the exact same way. I'm super nervous, by the way, preaching on this, because one of the things, whenever you preach or teach, Whatever it is, you know, whether it's like the Bible, like what, we're gonna, what I'm going to be doing now, or you know, if you're a teacher and you're teaching algebra, you have to say things that at least you're fairly convinced are true, right? I mean, because you want the students to learn. And um, it's going to be scary because 
Uh, this is gonna take a great deal of epistemological humility on the part of all of us, but especially me. There's gonna be chunks in here where I'm gonna have to say, I don't know what this means. And I've looked at it and studied it, and I can't say for sure what this means. And I, I'm not, I, I don't like doing that, but it's necessary if you don't know what something means. And so this is gonna be tough. And just to say, it's weird. Revelation is weird. There's weird stuff in there. There's animals with 10 horns, and one of the horns is growing up, and then one of the horns is starting to talk. What are we gonna do with that? Who knows? Part of the weirdness is just the genre is weird. And we're not comfortable with weird genres, and so we avoid them. Angela and I, Angela and I like opera. Uh, we took some friends, uh, a couple of friends of ours last summer to, over to Opera Theater St. Louis to see um, Carmen Bizet's opera. And uh, the wife had seen opera before. He had not. Super smart guy, he likes art. Uh, he's an intelligent person. Uh, just completely weirded out by the experience, though. Like, walking away, he just said, that was bizarre. I don't know if I ever want to see another opera. To hear people, like, singing with big operatic voices, like normal conversation, was weird for him. Well, what was the issue? The issue was genre. It was not a genre he was familiar with, and so it was very weird. And so and a lot of us feel the same way about Revelation. You start reading it, and you feel the same way as my friend does watching opera. It's just, just bizarre. What's going on here? I don't know if I'm very... Let, let's... let's Let's study Galatians. I can do that. I can read the Gospel of Mark. Let's do that. So it's weird, so we stay away from it. Of course, uh, my mom's not here this morning, but this is her big reason, like she's asked me not to, uh, to preach on Revelation. She's, she's not here because she's out of town, not because she's boycotting my sermon series on Revelation. Let me make it clear. But one of the reasons was she grew up like I did in uh, uh, fundamental Baptist dispensationalism, and there's a long history of badly misusing the book of Revelation. From Christians, think about the Left Behind series, which I don't know if anybody here is fans of that. If you are, it's by and large, I'm convinced, bogus. Uh, the, 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 the theological background to Left Behind is by and large bogus. Um, unbelievers do this too. Uh, Angela and I, and I think Kate did too, read a novel by uh, Emily St. John Mandel a couple years ago called Station Eleven, which this novel came out five or six years before uh, 2020, but it describes, it's a dystopian novel, but it describes a world where the population has by and large been wiped out by a pandemic. And so it kind of became popular during uh, 2020 for reasons which you guys don't need me to tell you. And um, in this, it's a dystopian novel, and in this book there's a character who this is off in the future, and he's this cult prophet leader. He's this cult leader, he's a prophet. He murders people who disagree with him, and, and he walks around quoting Revelation. Which is, the, 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 the novel was very good, I actually recommend it, but that's kind of hackneyed you know, to have like this cult leader in the future. And what, what does he say? Well, he walks around quoting verses from Revelation. Well, this is, this is this gross misuse of the book of Revelation that it's like some vision of dystopia in the future. And I sense that the Left Behind series is weird and wrong. I sense that pictures of people quoting Revelation verses as justification for why they can kill people who don't go along with their cult. That's weird and wrong. But what... The, what, what the, what that's done is it's driven me away from Revelation. I don't feel like digging into Revelation because it's just got all that vibe about it, you know, all that uh, late night TV vibe about it. And I, and I don't want to deal with that. But I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't. Another reason, another reason why we stay away from Revelation is it uses lots and lots of allusions from the Old Testament. That's one of the things that you're going to see as we go along here. It is just packed from stem to stern with allusions, quotations, and less quotations, Echoes and allusions to the Old Testament. 
Part of our problem is that we're not Old Testament people. We don't read the Old Testament. And so we don't get what those allusions are saying. Whereas for John's listeners, who that's what they studied and read, the Old Testament, they were fully comfortable and they would be, oh, I get that, I get that, I get that. And for us, it's more awkward. We're like, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? We just don't get these allusions. And uh, so we stay away from it. I was watching, uh, Reeve and I were watching, the, uh, a couple weeks ago, we were watching this uh, British comedy. I'm not even gonna tell you what it was because uh, you'll laugh at us. This British comedy from the 1980s and there were two characters on there and one of them asked the other character, who is famous for the line, who's famous for the line, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into. And the other character said, oh, that's what Maggie Thatcher says when she looks in the mirror. And nobody, get, nobody there's, a small, there's a small tittering of people who are older than uh, 50 in here who laugh at that. So, so there's two levels there. I had to explain to Reeve, first of all, who Oliver Hardy is, who would say, this is another fine mess you've gotten me into. And then I had to explain to Reeve who Margaret Thatcher was, the British prime minister in the 1980s, who was at different times in her uh, premiership was definitely unpopular. What's happened there is this, is that Reeve and most of you don't get that joke at all. Why? Well, because there's something from 90 years ago that you don't understand, Oliver Hardy, and there's something from 40 years ago that you don't understand, British politics from the 1980s. Now imagine that something is being written 2,000 years ago with lots of allusions to things that were written 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. And it's no reason why we're like, this is, I don't get, what is going on here with this? And so we stay away from it. And I'm gonna come back to this in just a second, but that's, not, that's no reason to stay away from it. In fact, it's actually a reason to be involved in it. I'm gonna give you this in just a minute, but here's some reasons to study Revelation. I'm gonna start with some broad reasons and then, and then get down to some narrow reasons. First of all, it's God's word, it's in the Bible, and so even if we don't understand it, to sit before it humbly and say, I don't get this, but I want to learn because it's God speaking to me is a worthwhile goal. By the way, five-second commercial. If you have not been reading your Bibles, this is a great time to start, January 1st. I know everybody's with the diet, and I'm gonna go to the gym tomorrow, I swear. Add scripture reading to this as well. If, you've not, if you don't read the Bible at all, start small. Start small. Read just a chapter. Ask God to open your eyes. It'll take you 30 seconds, seconds to say, God, thank you for this word. Open my eyes to it. And then just read a chapter. Don't, it's not mystical. Just read it like you would read anything. Just read it and ask God to show you what he wants you to know. And then just work on that. If you're, if you're already doing that, start to add more to it. Let's become people of the word. Okay, commercial over. Second reason why we should study Revelation, it's a new, fresh, different way of seeing the gospel. Lots of us, this side of the enlightenment are like, we like the facts. Book of Romans, we can outline that. We can bullet point it. Revelation's not gonna give you that. It's gonna give you images and pictures. It's not gonna give you stats. It's not gonna give you facts. It's gonna give you a painting. It's gonna give you a symphony. Not, not with logical argument, but with, with themes weaving in and out, like, like in a symphony, where one theme will pop up and then it will ebb, ebb away and another theme will come to the forefront. And then the first theme will come and join it and they'll play off each other. Revelation is a new, different, it's a right side of the brain experience. I know that that's bogus. It's a right side of the brain experience of the gospel. And so for those of us, you know, reformational people who are like, I like, I like Ephesians. Revelation is a good way to access the gospel. Third thing, properly understood, it's gonna give us really good encouragement. It's gonna give us good encouragement that God is in control. More on that later. And then the fourth thing is, and this goes back to what I said about allusions 
just a second ago. It's a great way to learn the Old Testament. It's a great way to learn what's in the Old Testament because it's so full of Old Testament imagery. Mainly, well, we'll, do, we'll do a little bit of that in here, but mainly for those of you who come down to adult Bible study, you will benefit from this mostly because we'll dig into all these images or as many of them as we can and talk about where does that come from the Old Testament and what does it mean? How does the Old Testament influence what John is saying here? All right, that's reasons to study Revelation. Let's get into the genre. I, t- I mentioned this earlier that this, you know, Revelation is a weird genre. It's actually three genres, two of which we're kind of comfortable with as Christians uh, who read the Bible, and one that we're not comfortable with. We'll spend some time on that. The first genre is letter. It's written in the form of a letter to the seven churches in, um, uh, in Asia, what's now in, in uh, present-day Turkey. Um, the first three chapters read like a letter, and then the very last chapter will read like a closing to a letter. In between, you'll be like, this is a weird letter. But it is, it's, it's in the form of a letter, which like Romans or Ephesians or Galatians or 1 Timothy is, um, you, you'll recognize the form. It's a prophecy. In chapter one, we read just a second ago that Revelation is a prophecy, which means it's a message from God. God is actually specifically giving this message to the churches through John. And then finally, and this is, let's spend a few minutes on this. It's in a genre that you and I aren't familiar with. It's not in our culture, but ancient Jews were very familiar with this, and the name of this genre was apocalyptic. And now I know when I say apocalyptic, you think dystopian end times, like the world's blowing up and there's wars and uh, there's uh, uh, people running around in the woods playing games on TV and whoever ends up killing everybody else and surviving to the end wins the Hunger Game. That's what you think of when you think of apocalyptic. That's not what apocalyptic is, though, in the ancient world. John would not, if we had said that, if we had said, oh, I saw this movie, it's kind of an apocalyptic movie, and John would have said, what's it about? And you said, well, it's like the end of the world, and like everybody dies, and there's like three people left, and they're battling over the resources that are left. He would have been like, I don't, that's not apocalyptic. You have no clue what you're talking about. Apocalyptic is a very, very interesting genre of literature in the ancient world. I'm gonna give you a few details about it, two, two basically big details. First of all, apocalyptic invest. What it, what it does is it invests common everyday events with cosmic significance, if they need cosmic significance. There, there, are, there are everyday events that happen that somehow, sometimes they're so important that they have to be pointed out with special cosmic language. I'll give you one example, which I think I've given this to you in here before. This is a sports fan, baseball nerd example. There's lots of home runs hit in baseball over the course of a year, over the course of a postseason. But in 1951, when Bobby Thompson hit a home run against the Dodgers to win one of the first three-game playoffs, that home run is a walk-off home run at the end of the third game coming down from behind. That home run was called by writers the shot heard around the world. Was that home run, when the ball hit the bat, was that home run literally heard around the world? No, it was just a home run. That's all it was. Guy ran around the bases, they cheered. They won the game, it was a big game. But what were the writers doing? They were saying, this home run's different than other home runs. This home run has big significance. Apocalyptic is language that does that. It invests common everyday occurrences with their big significances. Now, what happens is, is we see these descriptions of, and then the world exploded, and then there were fireballs in heaven, and then lightning struck, and everybody died, and we're like, that's horrible. But actually, what's happening is, those things aren't, I gotta be careful here, don't hear what I'm not saying. Those things aren't literal. 
any more than Bobby Thompson's home run was literally hurled, heard all over the world. It's just language to invest things that have happened with huge cosmic significance. I'll give you an example from Scripture. Oh, let me, let's do the Scripture example first, and then I'll give you the N.T. Wright quote. So, uh, um, 1 Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 22. Now, uh, 2 Samuel 22, David is, he's written this song and he's singing this song about how God had made him king. Like Saul was against him, Saul was trying to kill him, but at the end of the day, God made David king. Now, the events that led up to David becoming king were fairly ordinary, right? I mean, I was, he killed the Goliath, that's a, a powerful thing, but it wasn't necessarily supernatural. It's a kid with a good shot, right? I mean. You know what I'm saying? There's no difference between supernatural and natural in God's world. But it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything dystopian or apocalyptic. It was just normal events. Saul gets jealous of somebody who he feels is a threat to his authority. Saul tries to kill David. David goes on the run. Saul's killed by the Philistines. The Israelites acknowledge David as the upcoming king and anoint him and, and, and recognize his anointing as king. That's what happened. But here's how David describes him becoming king. Check this out. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So God heard me. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him as canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then, check this out. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Now, did any of that literally happen when David became king? Were the foundations of the sea uncovered? Were the foundations of the world laid bare? Was there lightning and, thundering, and thunder chasing Saul? No. What David is doing is he's saying, my kingship is cosmically important. I'm not just another king. I am, in fact, the Messiah. I'm the one that God has chosen to represent his people. I'm the one that God has chosen to, bury about, to, to carry about in my body the offspring which will someday become Jesus Messiah. And so when he becomes king, he describes that in terms of earthquakes and lightning and fire and the sea bulging up and tidal waves and things like that. That's what apocalyptic does. That's what apocalyptic does. Now, here's a quote by N.T. Wright, which talks about how we mistake it. If you try to take Revelation and its apocalyptic imagery, literally, you're gonna end up thinking left behind is a true story. But it's not the way apocalyptic works. Here's what N.T. Wright says. I've pointed out often to my students that to describe the fall of the Berlin Wall as one well might as an earth-shattering event. That, that would be a normal way to describe the fall. Lots of walls get torn down every day. The fall of the Berlin Wall is an earth-shattering event. To describe it that way might perhaps lead some future historian maybe writing in the Martian Journal of Early European Studies. So millennia from now, somebody on Mars, we've colonized Mars, somebody's writing in the Martian Journal of Early European Studies to, to hypothesize that an earthquake had caused the collapse of the wall, leading to both sides realizing they could live together after all. See what that, see what that, that hypothetical future scholar is doing? Is saying, oh, 
This, I'm reading this ancient historian who said it was an earth-shattering event. There must have been a huge earthquake, and the wall fell down, and then East and West Berliners were like, oh, you know what? We can get along, uh, we can get along uh, really well. A good, here's what N.T. Wright says. A good many of our readings of apocalyptic literature in our own century operate on about that level of misunderstanding. So, this is going to comfort my mom when she watches this. We're not going to go there and say, okay, what literal events are going to happen when? Because that's just not the way apocalyptic works. It's ordinary political, social, and cultural events infused with the cosmic significance they deserve through the language of apocalyptic. I'll tell you why, in just, I'll tell you why that's important in a second. Second thing, highly symbolic, dramatic images not to be taken literally. Second thing is this. It's full of pictures from the Old Testament which describe beautifully redemption, judgment, victory, other Old Testament events. Images from the Old Testament do that. So I'll give you an example. Famously in Revelation, there is, uh, we'll see that when we get later on, there's a, a, a plague of locusts that arrive. Now, if you think of these as huge, gigantic locusts, you'd be freaked out. You know, what the locusts are gonna mutate and they're gonna be bigger than we are and they're gonna fly around and eat us. That's scary. That's why people watch movies like Left Behind and, and, and get freaked out. Maybe even worse, when I was a kid, I alluded to this a couple weeks ago, when I was a kid, I heard at least a couple of biblical teachers say that the locusts were John, he's having this vision and he's seeing the future. He's seeing the year 1986. That was when I heard this. It's always the year that you're in is what Revelation is about, right? He's seeing the year 1986 and he sees Apache helicopters. And he doesn't know what they are because he's a first century, you know, he's kind of a backwards, he doesn't know anything about, you know, air technology or helicopters. And what he sees these helicopters and to him they look like huge locusts. And you can kind of imagine that if you've seen, you know, if you, for, for those of you who are children of the 80s, if you remember Blue Thunder or Airwolf, you can kind of see a locust there whenever in your mind when you see that. Actually though, is it possible that there were locusts that were sent as a plague to, uh, to, to, to fight against God's enemies back in the book of Exodus? And maybe John is just echoing that. Is that maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's not Apache helicopters. Maybe it's just language from the Old Testament where John is saying, remember how God defended us before? He is going to liberate his people again. There will be a new, maybe not literal, there will be a new 10 plagues where God actively fights against those who are warring against his church and against his son to deliver them just like he did before. I think that's probably more possible. When you see apocalyptic as echoing Old Testament language and as highly symbolic, it's gonna start to make a lot more sense um, uh, out of the book of Revelation to us. Okay, a couple quick more things and then I'm gonna run through a few points. I, I know I'm gonna try to do this fast. Next week will not be as long as this, I know. Why would writers use apocalyptic? I've kind of already said this. First of all, apocalyptic by... Um, I've been trying to work here to this point. When I say infuse average, you know, common political, social, cultural circumstances with cosmic significance, what I, here, here's what I really want to say, is that the things that happen, in the Jewish mindset, they do not separate God and politics like we do. They don't do they just, the, the separation of church and religion is unknown in the ancient world. Religion was politics, and politics was religion. Massive overlap between those two things. And one of the ways that a Jewish writer can emphasize that is by making clear that what Caesar is doing is satanic. And making clear, let me, let me highly recommend, if you, if you weren't here, 
and most of you weren't, if you can go back on YouTube or on the church website and re-listen to my sermon on Christmas Eve, to, to make highly clear that the birth of this baby in Bethlehem is the beginning of a political revolution. I, I mean that quite literally. He is about to take over the world. He is about to challenge and revolt against the Caesars and the Quiriniuses of this world. It was meant to be taken as political subversion. Apocalyptic language does that. And we will meet the birth of a baby, the birth of the baby Jesus, in the book of Revelation, where it's very, very explicit that this baby is doing warfare against a dragon. This baby is Jesus. The dragon is the Roman Empire. Uh, all of the political forces which are opposed against Jesus. We'll come back to that more and more. What Revelation does, what Apocalyptic does, is it shows you that what God is doing and what's happening in real time in politics and culture are not separate things. This might be more clear, let me say it this way. A revolution is begun on that first Christmas. This is what, Jesus gets killed for being a revolutionary. Rome doesn't kill nice prophets who go around healing people and patting babies' heads and preaching love. Rome kills people that are threats to Caesar. This is why Jesus dies. Fast forward a few decades. How's the revelation going? Let's check in with John in Ephesus. Actually, he's in exile on Patmos. How's the revelation going? How is the fight against Caesar going? Well, here's the church. It's beleaguered. It's attacked. It's small and it's tiny. It's still meeting in house churches. It's attacked from outside by the forces of, of, of emperor worship, which are trying to demand that it cave in to the cultural expectations that the emperor be worshiped. It's also attacked from the inside, we'll see it in, Re in Revelation two and three, by sexual immorality, by syncretism, by apathy, just by like, well, we're Christians, whatever, you know, we're forgiven. The church is becoming increasingly weak. Meanwhile, emperor worship is becoming stronger and stronger. Within a couple of decades of the, when it, when it, adult Bible study, we'll talk about when this is dated. Within a couple of decades of when this is dated, five of the seven cities that these letters go to have beautiful big temples to worship the emperor uh, built in them, the emperor Trajan built in those cities. Now, here's your, you're a Christian, and every Sunday you've got to kind of skulk before light comes up to go to the house church to worship with a bunch of other poor, miserable people, this God who's revolted against Rome and is now king of kings and lord of lords. Meanwhile, when you leave church, not all together, because you don't want to get beat up, you can walk past this huge, beautiful, massive temple that says, Caesar is Lord. When you just confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, how are you feeling about that? What the book of Revelation, you're probably feeling pretty bad about that. You're probably tempted to give in, to, to, to quit, to be discouraged minimally. And what the book of Revelation does is it says, okay, you see all this happening. You see the temples being built. You see your poor, miserable self worshiping in the dark of night in a little tiny house church. Let's pull the veil back and see what's actually happening behind the scenes of these things. And what's happening is Jesus is kicking butt. Jesus is defeating the forces that are opposed against him. That's what Revelation does. That's why they did it. Okay, one more point of clarification. And then um, I'm gonna ask you for three minutes to kind of preach a sermon and stop doing like a lesson, a Bible study lesson. And uh, then, we'll, then we'll move on to communion. Uh, real, point, real quick, point of clarification. I know some people are thinking, isn't apocalyptic all about the future? You saw John say it here, or, or uh, Jesus say it to John here in uh, verse 19, right? Therefore, the things that you have seen, past tense, those that are present tense, and those that are to take place after this future tense. Revelation is about, it's not about the future. 
The book of Revelation is not just about the future. It's about all times and all places where God's people are at in the name of Jesus. All right. George Caird, the New Testament scholar, says this. Revelation is highly symbolic. Maps on a general's, uh, uh, little tiny flags on a general's map are highly symbolic of whatever, the units or, or the armies that they represent. Those flags on that map can represent where the army has been, where the army is now, or where the general's planning on moving the army. In that same way, the symbolism of Revelation can reflect both what's happened in the past, what's happening now, and what's going to happen in the future. Our goal here in Downstairs in Bible Study will be to talk about when is this. More on that in just a few minutes downstairs. Okay, let me preach a sermon real quick. That's uh, enough of intro. Uh, we're going to give short shrift to John chapter 1 just for the sake of time. In John chapter 1, we meet, in John, uh, John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we, we meet the major characters of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. You have the Father giving a revelation of Jesus to Jesus through the angels to John to the churches. So let's talk about these people here. First of all, the churches. In, chapter, in, in, in verse 11, we meet these churches, the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. John is a pastor in um, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. If you look at a map of current day Turkey, of uh, what was Asia, what was called Asia in, in John's day, you'll see that these churches, in the order that they are, circle clockwise the city of Ephesus. Clearly, this is a letter that John is sending to these churches that is meant to be read in these churches. In chapters two and three, we'll get to the specific messages that God sends to these churches. These churches are weak. They're attacked from the outside, and John is writing to them, and they're attacked from the inside, and John is writing to them to give courage and boldness, to be faithful to the revolution that Jesus has started and is still in the process of wrapping up. Next, we meet the angels. The churches are overseen by angels. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In apocalyptic literature, frequently, major figures are represented by angels. While the major figures are struggling in this life, their angels are struggling with other angels in that other realm, which is overlapping our realm. Uh, downstairs, we'll look at a passage in Daniel chapter 10 in just a few minutes where this is very specific. But right now, let's just say this. You are not alone. God is in charge of what's happening in his church. As beleaguered as it might be, as weak morally and spiritually as it might be from the inside, God is still in charge of his church. His angels watch over it and guide and direct. Okay, third character, John. John is a witness in verse two. John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He's also in political exile. Verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Irenaeus tells us that John was exiled for continuing to announce in the face of evidence that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not Lord. The political authorities in Ephesus finally said, you've got to go away for a while. And they shipped him off to a small island in the Aegean Sea, which is about 20 miles off the coast of Ephesus, where he's there, he's praying, his brain is filled up with Old Testament scripture, his heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's given this ecstatic vision of what God sees going on in the world behind the scenes. That's what's happening with John. Finally, we get to Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. Couple things, first, he's eternal. Verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We're gonna meet a Roman emperor in a few chapters who is, who, who was and who is no more, which is kind of uh, John's riff on, he's the anti-Jesus, right? He's the anti-Christ, literally. 
And so uh, verse 8, he uh, uh, was and is and is to come. Also in verse 17, jump over there, uh, uh, Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse uh, 8 again, I am the alpha and the omega. So the alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, the omega. So he's like saying, I'm A to Z. I'm everything. I'm eternal. I'm always there. I'm always there. In every time and in every place, I am there. I am the sovereign Lord. He's the king of the universe. Uh, dang it, we don't have time to do this. We're going to do it downstairs in just a minute. Verse 7, behold, he's coming with the clouds. What does that mean? That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. We'll look down. Uh, actually, we've got to do it right now. I apologize. He's coming on the clouds, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Also look down at verse 13. In the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds like a son of man. What's being talked about here? Let me quote to you from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has this vision of all these beasts that are rising up. And they're so powerful and they rule the whole world. And one by one, God knocks these beasts off. But here's how, um, here's how it looks in Daniel 7. Daniel says, as I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked in because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Uh, forget that. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. The bad political forces are killed and destroyed. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's the clouds of the heaven, there came one like a son of man. So those two images in Revelation 1 from Daniel 7, 13. And he came to the Ancient of Days, one like a son of man, came on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus. This will be the key theme throughout the book of Revelation, is that Jesus is in fact the king of all the kings, and the Lord of all the lords. And despite the appearances, everybody in the world is working for Jesus. He is their sovereign Lord. He rules over them. He will kick their knee to force them to bow down to him if they do not bow down to him willingly. He wins in the end because he's already won. It's a key theme of Revelation. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and President Biden is not. Jesus is Lord and it would, whoever the president or the prime minister of your favorite country or your favorite king or whatever, whatever economic leader that you can think of, a religious leader, Jesus is Lord and they are not. That is the key theme of Revelation because, finally we'll be done here, because Jesus is himself the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is, is the first line in verse one. It is Jesus who's being revealed. If apocalypse, is a, if, if, if apocalypse, if revelation is a recognition that God's world and our world overlap, that what's happening in our world is actually a playing out of what's happening in God's world, Jesus is the crux of that. He's the heart of that because Jesus is the God. He is the one from heaven who lived on earth, lives on earth. Jesus is the God who is a man. Revelation is all about Jesus. And he rules and reigns because he's died and rose from the dead. Last thing and then we'll be done. Verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, actually literally in Greek he says, I became dead, but look, I'm alive. I became dead, but look, 
I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is Lord of the universe because he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Caesar cannot beat that. There's not enough money in the world that can beat somebody who can die and rise from the dead. That makes Jesus Lord of the universe, Lord of the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the theme of Revelation. I know that was long. I apologize. Uh, Tried to talk as fast as I could. Uh, more, uh, th- th- it'll be shorter when we get into chapters two and three in the, in, in the upcoming weeks. Let's pray and then we'll go on, uh, move on to communion. Father, help us to, as we study uh, uh, your book of Revelation, help us to see your son Jesus. Help us to be uh, willing, as, as you by your Holy Spirit have made us willing, help us to be willing to bow the knee in faith to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and to confess that he, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, he, not politics, politicians, he, not money, he, not sex, he, not power, he is the Lord of the universe, to confess that boldly and bravely with, with full confidence that he, in fact, is going to make all things new. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made your son king of kings and lord of lords. Um, um, may you rule over this universe. We, uh, none of us in here think that everything is good, that all is right. There's lots of sickness in the world, and there's uh, lots of hatred, and uh, um, lots of wars, and uh, lots of relationships which have been broken and strained. And Father, we pray that you, we confess and believe that you are Lord, and we pray that you would exercise that lordship. Father, work in our hearts to submit to you. Work in, our, in, work in our neighborhoods to submit to you, and in our families, and in our church. Help our church to submit to you. And uh, may your rule and reign become apparent in the life of uh, us as individuals and in St. James Lutheran Church. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we do pray this morning for everybody who's sick, and there's a ton of people who have um, COVID or flu symptoms uh, here at church, and we just pray that you would pour strength and health and energy into their bodies and uh, bring them back to good health. We pray for uh, a lot of people who are traveling this morning and are on their way back from uh, spending time with families uh, away for Christmas, and we pray that you would give them safety and bring them back uh, uh, to us quickly so that we can all be together again soon. And uh, we thank and praise you uh, in this uh, first Sunday after Christmas for the incarnation, especially that uh, you, God, do not stand aloof from your creation that you have written yourself into the story, that you've made yourself a character and a player as one of us in this story. Lord, bring about uh, your new creation through the power of your incarnation. Lord, in your mercy. We can, we can only pray these things because you're the God who loves us. You are our Father. You're not just the Lord of the universe, but you are our brother, Jesus. You've joined us to yourself and made us your sisters and brothers and Father, because of that, we can come and speak to you as your fellow daughters and sons with your son, Jesus. And so we make these requests uh, before your face boldly, trusting in you as a God of love and mercy and sovereignty to do what's best for us. But we do ask these requests boldly, not afraid, Father, to show you what our hearts are and to expose before you our fears and our faults, but also our desires and our dreams and our wishes. Um, May you do what is best for us and what brings most glory to your name. We pray this in the name of our brother, your son, Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he's now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing.
let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Try. 
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around. Find somebody you have not talked to in a while. Look and find somebody you don't recognize and go build relationship. Go in peace.